<clears throat> well, tonight we are focusing on uh, chapter 17 in your book, which is about common grace. Common grace, the doctrine known as common grace. Uh, common grace originated out of a, a problem, and Louis Burkhoff uh, probably has given the best, I guess the, the, the best precursor for why it's a problem by a series of questions that he asked in his systematic theology. And these are the questions that he asked. First of all, he says, how can we explain the comparatively orderly life in the world seeing that the whole world lies under the curse of sin? Second, how is it that the earth yields precious fruit in rich abundance and does not simply bring forth thorns and thistles? Thirdly, how can we account for it that sinful man still retains some knowledge of God, of natural things, and of the difference between good and evil, and shows some regard for virtue and for good outward behavior? Fourth, what explanation can be given of the special gifts and talents with which the natural man is endowed? and of the development of science and art by those who are entirely devoid of the new life that is in Christ Jesus. Fifth, how can we explain the religious aspirations of men everywhere, even of those who did not come in touch with the Christian religion? And sixth, how can the unregenerate still speak the truth, do good to others, and lead outwardly virtuous <coughs> lives? The, the bottom line, the question that he's asking is that, this world, because of the fall, is under curse. What's the curse? Death. Death and all the things that go with death. And so he's asking a question that uh, should be asked. It's a question that is a natural question to ask, given what we know. And that is, well then why... If the world has been cursed by God because of sin, uh, why does the earth produce anything but thorns and thistles? Why does it produce apple trees or uh, strawberries or uh, pecan trees or hickory trees or anything that's, that's, that we term as good? Why does that happen? Why is it that we can see that man engages in gainful behavior even though he's under a curse and he's destined to die. If we're under the curse, there's all these things that happen that we would look at even in that context and say, these are good things. These are things that have merit. And he's asking, why? How do you reconcile this? We're under the curse, we're under judgment, and yet there's still good things taking place. How is that explained? The answer? Common grace. Common grace. Common grace. Now, not to be confused with saving grace. Saving grace is different. Common grace applies to everyone. It's general. It affects everyone. Saving grace only affects the elect, those that, that have been appointed to salvation, those that God uh, saves. Common grace is the grace of God by which he gives people innumerable blessings that are not part of the salvation. <clears throat> the word common here means something that is common to all people, and is not restricted to believers or to the elect only. <clears throat> we'll read it again. Common grace is the grace of God. So this is an important distinction here. There's no differentiation between grace. Grace of God is grace of God. It's, it's the qualifier that's important. Common grace means that it's available, it applies, it touches everyone across all the spectrum, both the lost and the saved. Saving grace only applies to those who have trusted in Christ, who have been changed by the grace of God. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. 
Common grace is the grace of God by which he gives people innumerable blessings that are not part of the salvation. The word common here means something that is common to all people and is not restricted to believers or to the elect only. <clears throat> Saving grace, as I said, is specific to the elect. Common grace available for everyone. So we have Adam and Eve, the fall in the Garden of Eden, the consequences of sin, death comes in, everything's under the curse. <clears throat> why doesn't everything die instantly? You know, why didn't Adam and Eve die instantly? Common grace. Common grace. And so when people, when people look at you and say, well, you know, why does uh, God allow good things to happen to bad people. It's common grace. And God, in His infinite wisdom, uses those things to accomplish His purposes, part of which is His saving grace. Doesn't mean necessarily that, that He sends blessings into the lives of lost people in order to save them. But he may send those blessings in their lives in order to gain their attention so that they might at least hear the gospel or, more importantly, that they may recognize his kindness. And, and it affirms his kindness. Okay, If he's being an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-sovereign God and he's doing common grace, he's allowing common grace to affect even the most unregenerate despicable, evil human being you can imagine, what's that a testimony of? That God's negligent or that God's kind? That God's kind. He may ultimately save that, that person. That person may be in line for saving grace, and this may be part of the process of drawing him. He may not. He may not come to faith in Christ, and he may be forever judged because of it, but that common grace is not wasted. God uses that to point to his own glory, to his own greatness, to magnify that for all to see. Now, <clears throat> examples of common grace. I want you to think about, if you can, most everybody has some imagery in mind when you think about hell, about the judgment of God. So imagine what that would be like, you know, if you've uh, been close to a out-of-control fire, whether it's a fire of a house or a forest fire, or you know, you've seen the imagery on television or in a movie, uh, that's kind of what we think about, right? So we think about what is hell like. That's the imagery that pops in. So you take that imagery, and then I want you to look around, look in this room, and what do you see in this room that fits that imagery? Do you see anything? Yeah, well, I mean, if, if you're thinking about, okay, hell is flames and it's, uh, it's, it's uh, smoldering and it's hot and it's, it's torturous. So when I look around this room, do I see anything like that in here? I don't, do I? So everything I'm looking at right now is a part of common grace. Anything that doesn't reflect the judgment of God is a part of common grace. All of it. Uh, and so it's all around us. It's available to everyone. Uh, James says that it, um, it, it, um, I can't call up the word. James chapter 1 verse 16 says that, wait for it. <clears throat> Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So all things that are coming down is a part of God's good and gracious plan. So <clears throat> being a little bit more specific, let's think about common grace in the physical realm. Common grace in the physical realm. Unbelievers continue to live in this world only because of common grace. If it weren't for common grace, we would be judged immediately upon our birth, or maybe even conception. The one thing I quibble with, and I didn't bring the book with me, but the, anybody bring the book? Turn to the beginning of the chapter. Yeah. You got it? Mm -hmm. I got the beginning of the chapter. Okay. 
The second, the second sentence, Bob, read that for us. In the introduction? Yeah. Okay. In the same way when human beings sin today, they become liable to the wrath of God and Stop. eternal punishment. Did you hear it? Read it again. In the same way, when human beings sin today, they become liable to the right, wrath stop. of God. Is that when we become liable to the wrath of God? See, what he's doing is drawing a direct correlation. Now, I think it's just a poor, I don't think they did a good job of editing this and that statement. Uh, Luke and I argued a little bit on it. He says, you know, you go back, and I wasn't here for the, for the week on sin, but he said, you know, he, I, I know he believes right. I just think that was a poor selection on the sentence. It reads as though he's saying, when you sin, then you become liable to the judgment of God. Well, that's not true. We're liable to the judgment of God the moment we're conceived because we're conceived in sin. Remember David? I was conceived in sin. So, you know, there's no hope for us not to be under judgment the moment we become a being. And you can... Do your, you know, I believe it's a conception that we become a being. But certainly when you draw your first breath of air in this world after being born, you're automatically a sinner. Uh, if not, then you'd have to say, okay, when does a child sin the first time? When does a child sin the first time? You know, is it when they're pitching a fit at six months old because they, you know, their diaper's wet and they want it changed? Would that be a sin? Or is it when they get older and they know the difference between sinning and not sinning? See, you get into too much, too many hoops to jump through at that point. The fact is that we are declared sinners because we are descended from Adam. And he makes that point in his chapter on sin. So I just think that was an unfortunate phrasing there. It reads, it reads wrong. <clears throat> I can be so audacious. And he probably would have a good explanation of what he intended there, but it just reads wrong to me. So, unbelievers continue to live in a world only because of common grace. If not, we would all be extinguished the moment we were conceived. We just, I mean, we wouldn't all be here anyway because Adam and Eve would have been, been destroyed the moment that they sinned against God. This would be the judgment of God. This would be the justice of God. And when you hear people say, well, God did this or God did that, and that's just not fair. Well, if you want fairness... That would be fair because God has a standard. It's not open for debate or opinion. It is what it is. And so when we, when we fail to meet that, then we automatically deserve to face the consequences. And the, and the consequences are death and destruction. But God has extended common grace. So this is evidence of God's mercy. What's the difference between mercy and grace? Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. Okay, I show you mercy. You know, if I'm a, a judge and you got a speeding ticket and I throw it out, rather than make you pay the fine, serve the time, whatever it may be, I say, I'm going to let you go on this with a warning. You know, that this, you better not be back in my courtroom again. I've demonstrated mercy to you. I've given you what you did not deserve. You deserved to pay the fine. You deserve to do whatever the consequences say that you're supposed to do. And I said, I'm going to let you go without having to do that. So mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Getting what you do not deserve. Then you get second chance. You get declared righteous. You didn't deserve it. You didn't have any merit to earn it. God has given what we did not deserve. God has withheld what we did deserve. That make sense? So, when, when we're born into this world, when a child is born, as small as they are, they come into this world and they're, they're, we just think they're perfect, they're innocent, and all those things, but they are descendants from Adam. Left to grow, they will grow up into dark-hearted, evil vessels like all of us capable of murder capable of sin i mean you think about it you just think about it 
It's, it's a pretty phenomenal thing, but that seed is there. The seed from Adam of rebellion and disobedience toward God is within them. And that is all it takes to be judged by God, to deserve the judgment of God, to be declared an enemy of God. Not that you act on it. When we commit sin, we're simply acting on the nature that's within us. We're, we're blossoming. The seed is blossoming at that point. Fruit's being produced. When you plant an apple tree and you nurture it for three or four years or however long it takes before it starts putting forth blooms and then they turn into apples and produce fruit, okay? So that takes a little process. Well, you're born in this world. You come in with the seed of rebellion, but it may take a little while for that to produce fruit, for the fruit to come out and for you to recognize, ah, I know what's at the root, right? Common grace means that God gives us mercy during this time and allows us to have time that for whatever his purpose is. Maybe that he has, um, in his sovereignty, is going to, that you're part of the elect he's going to save. Let's look up some verses here. Start on this side. Scott, if you'll take Matthew 5, 44 and 45. Sam, Luke 6, 35 and 36. Bob, Acts 14, 16 and 17. <coughs> you want one? Yeah. Martha? Uh, well, some people don't, so I always try to ask. All right? <laughs> Genesis, Genesis 39.5. Some people don't like to read or whatever. So Genesis 39.5. James, Genesis 1, or Psalms 145.9. Psalms 145.9 and 15 and 16. 145, verse 9, 15 and 16. Phil, John 8.44. Shirley, John 1, verse 9. Stu, Romans 1, 21. Did you want one, Kenneth? No, no, no. Okay. Bill, Acts 17, 22 and 23. Audrey, Psalm 81, verse 12. Steve, Romans 1, 24. 26 and 28. And Linda, Romans 2, 14 and 15. That worked out perfect. Okay. Matthew 5, 44 through 45. For I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the excuse me, on the unjust. So part of common, common grace enables us to, uh, to enjoy the, uh, the benefits of this creation that God sends, you know, he uses the analogy here of rain, that when it rains, it doesn't just rain on my yard because I'm a Christian, but it rains on my neighbor's yard who probably isn't a Christian, you know? It rains on the, and in fact, sometimes the blessing may be out of balance in the wrong direction from our view. You know, well, shouldn't we Christians get a little bit more of a benefit from God on these things? But that's not necessarily true. Luke 6, 35 and 36. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend, them, uh, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So it says we, we as his people should practice what God practices and that we should demonstrate the same kind of grace and kindness toward people whether they deserve it or not. We don't always do that, do we? No, you're, you're not a nice person. I'm not going to be nice to you. That's wrong. We should be nice in spite of how they're acting. Uh, Acts 14, 16 and 17. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Right. Genesis 39, 5. 
for the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So God used Joseph, who was under duress, who was imprisoned wrongly. God, because of him being in Potiphar's house, actually blessed the whole household. So Potiphar benefited even through Joseph in that situation. Uh, Psalms 145, 9, 15, and 16. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Okay. Common grace is also evident in the intellectual realm. John 8:44. You are the father of the devil, and the rest of your father he will give. He was a murderer from the beginning and holding the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of them. Okay. Satan's totally corrupt, and the demons that follow after Satan, they are totally corrupt. There's not one good thing in them, <coughs> what he's saying here. Um we, we know people, we've actually been there ourselves where we've actually lied, haven't we? we? We, at some point in time, you've lied to someone, you've deceived someone, uh, but we're not totally that way. Uh, Satan and the demons are, but um, nobody, no human being is completely given over to lying and evil. All people are able to have some grasp of truth, some evidence of truth in them. Some have great intelligence and understanding by God's grace. If it weren't for common grace, we would all follow the same path as Satan and be like him. We would be of that same ilk in nature because we are a part of his crowd, shall we say, until we're born again. John 1, 9. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Okay. True light enlightens every man, he says. Not just believers, but Christ has served to make truth known in some respect to everyone. You know, you think about a lot of you probably grew up in school where uh, before the Bible and the commandments and all that stuff were taken out. And, you know, and it, it did make a difference. If you go back and look at the people who put the statistics together, uh, even people that did not come to Christ, the, the fact that they were taught those, those moral imperatives, they were taught truth, it still had an impact. You know, people culturally behave differently in a lot of respects than they do now. There was a lot more respect given toward law and things of that nature. Now we're seeing the full-blown representation of what it means to have no regard for those things in a culture. You know, every day it grows more disturbing, doesn't it? Common grace. Um, all people are allowed to have enlightenment. All people have some knowledge of God. Romans 121. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish to hearts were darkened. Hmm. So all people have some knowledge of God. Most all will admit to believing God exists, even have a hunger for God. You know, you can, these debates that you see between Christians and atheists, it's always interesting to hear that. It, it takes someone who's really schooled himself, trained himself, to avoid making slip-ups and, and letting, it, letting it slide out that it's hard not to believe in the existence of God. It really is. It's a hard thing. And if you took a poll of America, the polls usually are overwhelming. Over 90% of the people believe that God exists. How does that happen? It's common grace. It's the evidence of God working, that people um, believe that he exists, even though they may not opt for a saving relationship with him. Uh, what happens is this all, all, often results in false religion or man-made religion. Acts 17, 22, and 23. 
Paul then stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Yeah. Paul went into a pagan land in Athens filled with mythology and all those kind of things, but the very fact that they had this mythology was based in some idea of religion, of some kind of God that they, they pulled to. If you, go, if you go into the furthest uh, off the map somewhere into the recesses of this earth and find some tribe that's not had any connection with civilization, you'll still find some kind of religious hierarchy working at work there among the people. There's this ingrained sense. How does that happen when you've got a fall from, from innocence into sin and, and under the curse? You know, this is the grace of God that he makes this light, you know, as weak as it may be in some people or in some cultures, there's still a light there that points toward this great being, this creator. In spite of everything that's going on, that's common grace. It's evident all around us. The evidence of common grace in this intellectual arena is really profound. You're all, you're all evidence of it right now. This right here is evidence of it right now. This iPad that's right here in front of me. Uh, a book, you know, the ability to print and, and to read. All these things. Bill just took his glasses off. Your glasses. The, you know, technology. We have these things because of the common grace of God. We just had a great meal. You know why? Because of the common grace of God that he, he sends rain and sunshine. He keeps the earth at just the right, at the right distance from the sun and gives the right amount of light and water so that we have food produced in mass quantities that feeds a great deal of the world on a regular daily basis. And you and I just enjoyed the fruits of that a while ago because of the common grace of God. It, when you think about it, it's not just Christians producing that food or growing that food, is it? It's not just Christians that are designing or, or uh, coming up with, with the ability to do these kinds of technological advances. You know, it's, it's lost people alike. And so it's the common grace of God that's providing that arena where these things are happening. So uh, the world is benefiting from it. You know, you're sitting in a seat that somebody designed, that dreamed up, and, and has gone through a manufacturing process, and, and we've got what we've got because of it. Uh, city of Milton, you know, 12, 15 years ago it didn't exist. And now, you know, I never thought they'd get there. The first city council meeting I went to was in the early days. They formed, what, 2006. So I went probably the second or third month that they had a meeting and did an invocation. And I was planning on staying and, and observing their meeting just to see how does, how do, how does a group go about organizing and, and putting a city together, okay? Until I looked at the agenda. And it was like a six hour agenda. The meeting started at six o'clock and you know the last item was like at 11.47 or something like that. And I said, I'm not staying for this. And I heard, overheard some people talking, and they said, well, last week we went to 1230 or something like that. So, you know, but now, you know, and I, I've been privy to some of the conversations about their plans for the, for the uh, uh, city hall, uh, for these circles. We were just talking about this, me and somebody. We were talking about this the other day, about these, uh, these roundabouts. Mm -hmm. And I said, I remember when Bill Lusk started talking to me about that and said, this is what we're going to do about the traffic. And I said... It's not going to work. It's not going to work. Roundabouts? People don't know how to drive through a four-way stop. They don't know how to drive through a roundabout. And, but they are working. And, you know, what they're doing there is starting to really take shape now. We can see it. But it's not driven by Christians. You know, it's not Christians designing that and putting it together. It's, it's Christians maybe and non-Christians alike. It's the common grace of God that allows these good things to occur that we can enjoy as a society, as a people. So this is the intellectual realm. Um, common grace is also evident in the moral realm. God, by common grace, restrains people from being as evil as they could be. 
you have not seen many people that have actually acted out as evil as they have the potential to be. Uh, who, uh, name some of the worst people ever as far as we can tell, you know, as far as we can judge. Hitler, you know, he'd probably be the first one off most people's lips. Adolf Hitler. Horrible, you know, killing people. Mass destruction. We look, And yet, would you believe that Hitler could have been worse than he was? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he, he's not the devil. He's not Satan. So there's room... There's room for him to have gotten worse. Identify anyone that has demonstrated wickedness and evil to some infinite degree, and you you still there's still room for them to grow even worse. Common grace restrains uh, this. Even lost people do good occasionally, or more often than not. Sometimes you've got people that are that are unsaved that are good morally, good moral people, doing good moral things. If people persist hard-heartedly to follow sin, God ultimately gives them over to sin. Psalm 81, 12. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Yeah. I mean, you know, we never know how far that leash goes. Um, God gives common grace, but, you know, Romans 1... Psalm 81, they tell us that there's a limit, and we never know. Maybe it's for someone, it's the first time that they stretch the limit is the only time they ever get, and they, they are judged, they're destroyed. And others, it may be they, they go repeatedly, over and over and over, and God continues to be patient with them. And we don't understand it, and the only way we can explain it is the common grace of God, that he's extending an opportunity there, and he doesn't have to explain it. One, one second of God's grace, whether it be common grace or saving grace, is more than any of us deserve, right? Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28. Therefore, God gave them up to their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, whether women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to debased, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So even as bad as they are, it's hardly ever that we see evidence of someone being as bad as they could become. Conscience is a force of restraint that God uses in all people. Uh, it's part of God's common grace. Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Yeah, again, go back to the uncivilized people, wherever they may be in the, the deepest, darkest place on the face of the earth, and you'll find some sense of moral code, some sense of behavioral expectation among them, you know, directed by their own conscience. Uh, how often do we hear someone caught up doing wrong uh, when other people are shocked by it? Did that ever happen to you? Something hits the waves, you know, somebody you knew, somebody you've known, it was a neighbor that you've known, and suddenly it comes out that something heinous was going on with that person, and you had no clue. Does that ever happen? Mm -hmm. Sure it does. Happens all the time. The, these, uh, these things, uh, people are good at putting up fronts, at masking what they're doing, and so there's always room for them to grow worse than what we're seeing or observing. Um, common grace in the creative realm uh, the arts some of the most immoral attitudes and lifestyles are evident in, in the field of the arts and yet these people have this exceptional uh, appreciation for the beauty you know for the glory of artistry whether it be in music or whether it be in sculpting or painting or whatever it may be 
So how do you reconcile that? Here are these people that you know, have this infatuation and appreciation for the creative process and the beauty that results from that, the fruit that comes from it, and yet they can you know, be off the reservation in so much of their, the way they live their lives. The grace of God has made uh, a way for those creative talents to be used uh, in a way that all of society can even appreciate. Common grace in the societal realm. God's common grace is apparent in the form of various organizations and structures. For instance, the family. We see evidence of the family when it works properly, and we've seen evidence when it works in a dysfunctional manner. Dysfunctional is the way they all should be, right? And yet God has given us this structure that points us to Him, that helps us organize for the purpose of reproducing and filling the earth with uh, vessels that will subdue it and, and bring it to the glory of God. And um, it's just a, it's an incredible process. It's a businesses. You know, we hear a lot in our culture today, people ragging on people like uh, oil companies. And the biggest problem is because, oh, they're too rich, they make too much money, all those kind of things. Or they're not environmentally friendly or stuff like that. And yet, we all benefit from what they do, right? I mean, we all drove here in a car tonight. Anybody ride a bicycle? Or even then, you owe the petroleum industry for the rubber on the tires, right? Um, so common grace you know, extends in so many different directions and touches on so many different things. Common grace is in the religious realm. Uh, we read Matthew 5, 44 about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 tells us we should pray for our kings. In other words, for our leaders, for our rulers, that we should uh, pray uh, for them that they might have wisdom. Uh, we're to seek good for unbelievers. And that's consistent with God's behavior and desires. God has not promised to answer the prayers of unbelievers, but there are times where it indicates in Scripture that He does hear and will uh, answer the prayer of a believer, even though we know that He doesn't uh, always guarantee that He's going to do that. Um, then there's common grace. Uh, let's see. Common grace does not save people. That's what it's important to make this distinction. Common grace doesn't save anyone. Common grace, God may use that to draw someone to himself. God may use that uh, as a testimony to someone who's uh, lost and uh, rebellious. It cannot and does not change the human heart. Absolutely. I mean, the prayer, prayer, according to Scripture, we pray through Christ. That Christ is our access to the Father. And so if we don't have a relationship with the Father, we're not, we're not guaranteed. Now, you're going to make an up, a lot of people upset if you go out and start talking to them about that and say, well, you're lost. God didn't hear your prayer. Well, that's not entirely true. He, he may hear the prayer of a lost person, but as a rule, he's not going to until they pray a prayer of confession and repentance. Mm -hmm. That's when they, then they have Christ the advocate interceding for them. That, you know, when, if I went to, um, if, people just casually say, sure know, they do. Pray, I'm praying for, in fact, it's a crutch, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for a lot of them. They're, they're living for themselves all the time, but when something comes up, they say, well, yeah, let's pray about it. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a rabbit's foot. It's, it's, that's all it is for them. They don't understand the mechanics behind it. Um, if, if I went down to the Capitol building and walked in and said, I want to see the governor, chances are pretty good I'm not getting in to see the governor. You know, Right. Chances are pretty good of that. I, you know, he he might. I don't know. Maybe maybe we we go to Washington. You know, what's the chances of getting in to see the president? Slim and none, I would imagine. But let's say that you know I make friends with one of the president's children, and I go up to the door with one of the children. You know. Um, I don't remember. I don't know. I know Ivanka. What's the, what's the boy's name? Jared. 
Eric and Don Jr. Eric, Don, let's Don Jr. That's easy. So let's say I'm, I make friends with Don Jr. I meet him somewhere and we become friends. And so I go up to the White House and walk down the corridor. I walk through security or whatever it may be because I'm with Don Jr. And when we get to the Oval Office, we're probably not even knocking at the door. We're going in. Why? Because I'm with Don Jr. Not because of who I am, but because of him. And in a, that's a crude illustration, but it, but it tells us exactly the way it works with our Heavenly Father. We don't get access to him except through Christ. And so for you to say, I reject Christ as Savior, but Lord, I'd like to talk to you about my prayer needs. It's not going to happen. Okay? Now, God may, God may hear, He may choose to listen to a prayer of a lost man, and He may choose to do something in that situation, and it may appear like He's answered a prayer. Which is called common grace. That would still be common grace. That's not saving grace. Mm -hmm. But He may be using that gesture of common grace in some way or fashion or form to, to reach that person or to at least show his goodness and kindness in the midst of it. Now, it's not going to do you a lot of good to have that conversation. If you remember, some of you may remember, some of you are maybe a little too young, but Bailey Smith, who was a pastor at First Southern Dell City, <clears throat> south of Oklahoma City in Oklahoma, um, and became president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And Bailey was an evangelist at heart and, and just a preaching machine. But Bailey... And Bailey was a good guy. You know, Bailey never met a stranger and he'd talk to anybody and he didn't have filters, you know. He didn't have enough filters. Uh, but back in about 1981, somewhere in there when he was president of the Southern Baptist Convention, he made this statement. He said, God does not hear the prayers of the Jew. And it caused a furor. He was right, technically. But it was a poor choice to say it. You know, to the... To the Orthodox Jew who's not coming through Christ, he's absolutely right. God's not going to hear that prayer until you're ready to confess your sin and turn to Christ. Because it's only through the blood of Christ that we have any hope of access, accessing the Father, even in prayer. So that answer that, beat that horse enough. Uh, common grace does not save people. It cannot and does not change the human heart. It can provide preparation of the soul towards salvation but it does not save anyone it restrains sin but does not change anyone's foundational disposition to sin or purify a fallen human nature actions and deeds by unbelievers performed through the virtue of common grace do not merit God's favor or approval and that's where praying apart from Christ would fall is that it becomes a work it becomes an act of religion it's not it's not a conversation between two people who know one another. Does that make sense? Um, Romans 14.23 tells us that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Unbelievers often receive more common grace than believers. Now, it doesn't make sense to us. It's not logical for us. Why would God share more common grace to the lost man than he, than he does in the life of the believer? Him nearer. To draw him nearer, to keep him humble, to to make him a testimony to those who are lost. You know, go back to Job, right? The quandary that Job was in is that God kept saying, "Job does not worship me because of the things I have given him. He's not he's not worshiping me because I've blessed him. He's worshiping me because we have a relationship, and he honors me because of it, even if he were not blessed." That's how we got into Satan took everything away because he was convinced that Job only worshipped God because God had a hedge around him and was blessing him. So God was bribing him to worship him. That was the complaint. And that whole thing was about God proving the point that's not the way it's done. And so common grace may be more evident. You may see a lost man, generally speaking, this is no way you can be specific on this. But generally speaking, lost people may be more intelligent. They may be richer. They may have more things in this world. They may experience more. And often we all look around and we see that, don't we? We say, look at that crowd out there in Hollywood. They're, they're just a bunch of hoodlums and 
pagans, and yet they get all this money and fame and fortune and and all these things. And we go, what's up with that? Well, mommy went to go to Hollywood. I said well, that right around here. Well, right around here. You're exactly right. I was trying to be, you know, I was trying to be discreet. Um, but you're right. And we, you've had those thoughts, and I've had those thoughts. What's that guy? That guy lives for himself. He is. He, you know, he's profanity, he's a drunkard, he's this, he's that, and yet he, you know, all these things just fall into his lap, and he dry, he lives in the best house, he drives the best car. What about me? Right? Temptation is there. That um, they seem to be more favored by God, but God is more glorified, and his kindness is made more obvious uh, through these things, that if he's doing this for those that have rejected him, he again is showing his goodness. He's giving them opportunity. Rather than we think God ought to come out and beat them up so they'll recognize that they, you know, they need to bow down and worship him, but he does it the opposite way. He blesses in order to gain attention. So why does God bestow common grace on undeserving sinners who will never come to salvation? Why does he share common grace with those that will never believe on him? Well, he does it, first of all, to redeem those who will be saved. 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10. Somebody could probably count, uh, recite it, quote it. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are on it will be exposed. Judgment's being delayed in order that some may be saved, others may be saved. But by all rights, remember, sinners should be immediately judged. So common grace offers a time for sinners to hear the gospel and repent. Why does God bestow common grace on undeserving sinners who will never come to salvation? To demonstrate His own goodness and mercy. God's goodness is seen in the salvation of believers. This is absolutely true. It is also, and you and I sometimes don't think that's true. You know, we don't, because we can't see it. But we have to trust that God says He's going to use the testimony and the witness of those who put their faith in Him, even though it may feel to us like it's not happening. We, we can never completely know who all God is revealing himself to through whatever we may be walking through. He's always at work doing those things. It's also in his blessings he bestows on unbelievers and undeserving sinners. When God is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish, his kindness is revealed in the universe. His glory is made manifest. The rich young ruler. You remember the story? Guy comes up. He's got lots of money, riches. He's a ruler. He's young. He's got it all. He comes up and says, how, how can I know I have eternal life? You know, how, can I, how can I see the kingdom of God? You know, just like Nicodemus. And Jesus said, well, you know the law. He said, oh, yeah, I've kept the law. So he's religious. He's rich. He's young. He's religious. He's got everything. I've kept the law. And Jesus said, one thing you lack. Give everything you got, including your reputation. Give it all away and come, you know, just take me. Come follow me. He can't do it. What? You want me to give up all the stuff that I've worked so hard to accumulate and protect, and you want me to give it up and just come follow you? You got nothing. You know, you don't know where your next meal's coming from. That's the way he saw it. And he turned, the scripture says, and went away sad. And Jesus said how hard it is for those who have an abundance, you know, to enter into the kingdom of God. God delays judgment sometimes as an expression of his own love and goodness. He also bestows common grace on undeserving sinners to demonstrate his justice. When God repeatedly invites sinners to come to faith and they continue to refuse, the justice of God is made more clear by condemning them. Paul says those who persist in unbelief are storing up wrath for themselves in Romans chapter 2. He does this also to demonstrate God's glory. When humans develop and exercise dominion over creation, they reflect God's wisdom and other qualities. 
So what's our response to common grace? Three things. Common grace does not mean that those who receive it will be saved. We need to know that. Even an abundance of common grace present in one's life does not indicate or assure salvation. Secondly, we must be careful not to judge the good things that unbelievers do as totally evil. We have to be careful of that. Good things that an unbeliever does, it's very easy for us to judge those things or to scrap it altogether because we believe that person's not saved, so it has no, no value. It's important that we recognize common grace touches all lives and emits through all lives in some degree. Thirdly, the doctrine of common grace should stir our hearts to much greater thankfulness to God. Evidence of His goodness and kindness and mercy is undeniable. It's all around us. There's no variation or shifting shadows, James said. And those things should be a part of our intentional thinking in the way that we live our lives. I had um, ran into a mother this morning. She was kind of she was a little bit weepy. I said, "What's wrong?" And she said, "Well." I, uh, my son had a, um, you know, he said something this morning that's very hurtful to me. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't respond real well to it. And so it wasn't a good way for our morning to begin. And, you know, he had to go to school and, and that was that. And I said, well, I'm sorry. That's, that's not fun. But, you know, I'm trying to help her walk through this. This is what... This is what happens, you know, stresses and strains and all those things and fallen world. Yeah, yeah. So we talk a little bit and she says, look, I know my son and this is what's going to happen. And I said, what? She said, when he comes home today, gets off the school bus, he's going to come in the house. The first thing he's going to say is, I'm sorry, mom. And I said, really? She said, oh, yeah. He's going to come in and say, I'm sorry. And, you know, and then we'll talk about it. And I said, so you know your son that well and that's your expectation. She said, yes. And I said, so why are you sad? Why can't you live now in what you know is coming later? You know it's coming if you really believe that. Live in that now rather than just wallow in this hurt that you, you already know these things happen, right? And you know he's gonna reg he already regrets it. He's already remorseful for it. So just walk today as though he's already said, I'm sorry, because you know he's going to. I said, isn't that the way God deals with us? You know, he, he doesn't pull things back from us when we mess up and we blow up. You know, saving grace is good. Common grace is good. What was her response? Well, she told me later, saw her a little bit later in the day, and she said, I've had a good day today. I said, it's good. Sometimes we just have to be intentional. We have to think about what's going on. And that's all I did was help her think intentionally about what was going on and what was going to happen. Go ahead and enjoy the rest of your day knowing that this is going to be the, you know, you're going to have a reunion a little later and y'all are going to be, both of you are going to, you know, hug and, and it'll all be forgotten. So just go ahead and act like it's already happened. And I think she tried to do that. Worked out for her. It's not always that easy, but. Any questions?